0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. My presentation is Jesus and the call of the church. Uh, I'm going to do this in two parts. And um, uh, what that means is I'm going to do part one tonight and part two will be tomorrow. Uh, so my, the very first presentation tomorrow morning, I'll be picking up and finishing off wherever I leave off uh, this evening um, as well. What I want us to do now is to take what Clint has laid as the foundation for how to understand prophecy and how to understand the prophets and build on that and say, okay, now where does the New Testament pick up? Where does the, how does the New Testament fit into this timeline, fit into the story? What i love for you to understand and... Those of you who come to many of my classes will know that I believe the Bible is a big story from Genesis through Revelation, and the better we understand that story, and where a given book, Matthew, fits into the story, Haggai, the better we're going to understand that particular book, and as well as the the fact that we're better we're going to understand uh, the entirety of the Bible as well. All right, so let me continue uh, uh, with this presentation, then, Jesus and the Call of the Church. Let me begin by asking you four questions that you may never have thought about regarding the New Testament. Number one, since John the Baptist was baptizing with the baptism of repentance, Matthew and Mark both named that specifically, then why was Jesus baptized? If Jesus is baptized with the baptism of repentance, we have a problem. He has no need to repent. Second question, why does the Gospel of Matthew begin his Gospel with a genealogy? That's Old Testament stuff. What do we need to know about this for? Matthew has a very specific intention for giving us his genealogy. Third question. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells Joseph to name the child Emmanuel. Yet two verses later, they name him Jesus. And he's never called Emmanuel in the New Testament. Did they not hear? <laughs> you should call him Emmanuel. Hey, Mary, I've got a great name, Joseph. Or Jesus, Joseph, Jesus. That's my name. Go with Joseph. Go with Jesus. It's been a long couple of days. Number three. Why does the gospel... Or number four. Number four, three. Counting is not my forte either. Here we go. Why does the gospel of John begin with in the beginning? A clear allusion to the book of Genesis. And my answer to these four questions is, is that when we come to understand the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the rest of the New Testament... In an eschatological context, now eschatological means eschaton, the Greek, eschatos, the Greek word for last, uh, ology, study of, the study of the last things, study of the last days. When we come to understand the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, in this end times eschatological context, these types of questions will begin to make sense to us. Right, you see, many of us have come with a framework of thinking that the last days or the end times are about the future. That's a worldview that we've come to embrace. And the reason why we're doing this particular seminar, which is kind of a biblical study seminar, isn't it? Um, But we're doing it under the umbrella of the Worldview Project, is because within the Christian worldview, we actually have several worldviews affecting how we understand the last days. And when we understand the last days from a perspective of it's only about the future, then these types of questions don't really make sense. And I think we actually miss much of the New Testament story. Not only that, but we also miss the call of the church. And of course, that was point number seven in my introduction, what we want to ultimately uh, arrive at as well. So my first point is, we must understand Jesus' ministry in an eschatological context. That's the letter, Roman number one uh, on your outline there as well. First off, let me give three justifications for understanding the New Testament in an eschatological context. First The New Testament uses apocalyptic, or end times, language for numerous events in the life of Jesus. Apocalyptic is this imagery that, of course, pervades the book of Revelation. It's uh, Daniel, uh, Zechariah, parts of Isaiah, parts of Ezekiel, and we tend to think it's only about this end times, last days, future stuff, and what we don't realize is the New Testament is oozing with apocalyptic language. Now, without going into a great discourse on what apocalyptic language is, it's vivid imagery, it's imagery of the cosmic scope, uh, um, the heavens and the stars that are falling from the sky, and uh, um, just cosmic upheaval might be a good way of clarifying it. It's, It's language that uses cosmic upheaval to describe an event of significance. The coming of Jesus was an event of significance. And therefore, guess what? The Gospels use apocalyptic language to describe events relating to the life of Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. While he was on the cross, Matthew's Gospel records this. Matthew 27, verse 51 and 52. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... They entered the holy city and appeared to many. And you've read that and go, well, that's really weird. And people come up, all, well, you know, what does this mean? I'm not going to tell you. Um, the, the point is, it's apocalyptic language. It's cosmic upheaval language. Because the death of Christ was something of cosmic significance. And there's no other way to describe the death of Christ except to use cosmic language. Apocalyptic language. secondly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that when Jesus was on the cross, when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. You'll see darkness in apocalyptic literature, in apocalyptic language, etc. Thirdly, in the book of Acts, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit. So remember I've said, the last days began with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot minimize the significance of the Holy Spirit for understanding eschatology properly. It's essential. It's the whole point, in fact, for the New Testament. And we'll get there before we're done uh, tomorrow as well. But in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost on on the disciples. And as many of you are familiar, they begin speaking in tongues. And the people are going, what's going on? What's going on? For they're all hearing them speaking in their own language. And Peter gets up and he explains, this is what the prophet Joel has said would happen. And he quotes the the book of Joel, chapter 2. And it says, In the last days, God God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all mankind. And verse uh, 19 and 20, And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. This is apocalyptic language. So the first point was that the New Testament uses apocalyptic or end times language for numerous events in the life of Jesus and, of course, also in the coming of the Holy Spirit as well. The second thing I want to point out is that the New Testament presents the teachings of Jesus in an eschatological context, meaning Jesus taught with an eschatological mindset, an eschatological language. The best example, and I'm only going to give you one, but there's many of them as well, is when he tells his famous parables. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, what's very important to note is that there's only two parables. In the entire Gospel of Mark, he only chose two. The first one is the parable of the sower. The sower goes out to cast seeds, Mark Mark chapter 4. And he explains the various soils that the seeds are falling on. And as he finishes his explanation of the parable itself, in verse 9, he says this, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Mark chapter 4, verse 9. Now verse 10, the disciples say, Can you explain the parable to us? What does it mean? You see, if anyone has ears to hear is a phrase that appears in apocalyptic literature. And it means that what I've just said is kind of code. It's shrouded in mysterious language and it's not easily understood. So it's, it makes common sense. The disciples go, can you explain the parable to us? Now, Jesus uses this phrase several times. They gave you some examples. Mark 4, 9, verse 23 as well. Um, and Matthew 11, 15, 13, 15, And verse 43 as well. Now, there's one other place that we see this particular phrase resounding. And it's the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, it occurs three times, four times. And Revelation 3. In fact, what you'll notice is, the end of each one of the seven letters, in Revelation chapters 2 and Revelation 3, there are seven letters to the seven churches. All seven letters end with the refrain, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we know that Revelation is an apocalyptic book. The very first word in the Greek text of Revelation is "apocalypse." It's the revelation. It's an apocalypse. So if we begin to realize, hey, Jesus is using this cosmic upheaval, this language of the eschaton, this language of the end, to describe his own coming and his own ministry, and of course, even the coming of the Holy Spirit as well, we begin to realize that Jesus' ministry should be put into this eschatological context. Thirdly, we need to see that Jesus himself was an eschatological or end times prophet. Of course, he's more than that, don't misunderstand him. But he was announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, both in his presence and in his summons to follow him. And of course, the summons to follow him means the call for the church. This is where it becomes relevant to us. His own coming and in the coming of the church. Now, the first problem that we have in this, and the reason why we usually don't see this, is because for many of us, the end times are future Maybe they're being fulfilled today, and we're reading the newspapers, etc. Uh, by the way, Andy apologized, because Clint, he wrote that article on, Exodus, on Ezekiel 1.4 about the UFOs, so he's sorry about that, and <laughs> didn't realize he wasn't supposed to do that. But, uh, so when we begin to look and say, well, wait a second here. What is the worldview that Jesus was living in? What was the worldview of first century Judaism? The, how would they have heard Jesus? What does it mean? to say that Jesus is this eschatological end times prophet. Well, the big thing is, and picking up on where Clint left off, and that was this. The prophets are promising Israel that because of your sins, God has sent you into exile, but He won't forget you in exile. He will bring you back into restoration. He will restore His people. And then we have this 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. Have you ever thought... That when the New Testament says that John the Baptist was a prophet? What? There hasn't been a prophet in 400 years. Ah, the eschaton has arrived. Prophecy is being restored. Ah. Well, we begin to realize as we look into first century Judaism and the worldview presented by the Old Testament prophets, that one of the first things we need to understand is the fact that not only was Israel sent into exile meaning the people of Israel, if you're not familiar with the story, were carried away, both in the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests that Clint alluded to. All right? And they're living in distant lands. And God promises them that someday they will come back and be restored to the land. Well, one of the other central promises of the restoration was the fact that Yahweh would come back to the land also. You see, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., And what does that mean? That means Yahweh left. Yahweh's gone. They rebuilt the temple. Of course they had rebuilt the temple, but Yahweh had not come back. You read all the Jewish literature of the day. Yahweh has not returned. The temple's here, but Yahweh's not in it. So now we turn to the Gospel of Mark. And as we open up the Gospel of Mark, it begins this way. John the Baptist quotes Isaiah chapter forty. And the quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 is this. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The word Lord in Hebrew is Yahweh. John the Baptist is saying, guess what? Make ready the way. Yahweh is coming back. Yahweh is returning. Make ready the way. Now we go to the Gospel of Matthew, and what do we we find? You're to name the child, Emmanuel, God with us. Yahweh has returned. Joseph, the child your wife will bear, is God who is returning to the land. Not only that, but Matthew begins his Gospel, of course he's got the genealogy, he not only begins the Gospel with, you'll call the child Emmanuel, but the very last verse of the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, it's the last verse of what we call the Great Commission. And the last verse of the Great Commission says, and lo, I am with you always. Yahweh has come back to the land. Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Emmanuel, God with us, frames the Gospel of Matthew. It begins with an announcement of, Emmanuel, God with us. And it ends with, and I'm with you Always even to the end of the age. Jesus is announcing in his own ministry that he himself is the return of Yahweh to the land. The eschaton has thus arrived. All right, second point that I want to make then. There's three points here. Let me see if I'm following uh, your outline. There you go. Uh, The second point then. So the first point is, we should understand Jesus' ministry in an eschatological context. Secondly, we need to understand... That the kingdom of God... Let me go back, sorry. That the kingdom of God that Jesus announced is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Namely, of course, therefore, that the eschaton has arrived. Say it again. The kingdom of God that Jesus announced is the fulfillment of all God's promises. All right? The eschaton has arrived. Remember, all God's promises are yes in Jesus. It says it. They're all amen in Jesus. The first point I want to make to support that is, there's a repeated phrase throughout the New Testament that the last days, or the end times, have begun. Though, of course, the future, the consummation, the bringing of it all together, has not yet arrived. The last days have arrived. How do we know this? Well, because the New Testament uses the phrase, the last days, repeatedly referring to the present And the reason why we don't realize that is because we come to the Bible with this worldview, this perspective that says, the last days are future. And we just read the passage, the last days, and we thought it was talking about the future. But if you look at the context more carefully, it's referring to the present. Let me give you several examples of the use of the last days as referencing something in the present. I already read it once. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter quotes the book of Joel and says, in the last days... I'll pour out my Spirit upon all mankind. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, according to Peter, who's quoting Joel, saying, hey, guess what? The reason why this is happening is because the last days have already begun. The book of Hebrews says something very similar. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after, the fa- after He spoke long ago to the fathers and many in, the, uh, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days... He has spoken to us in His Son. According to the book of Hebrews, the last days have already begun. John, and 1 John, actually goes one step further. And I could show you many other uses of the last days, by the way, in the New Testament. The, the phrase, the last day, let me clarify. The phrase, the last day, refers almost always to the second coming of Jesus. The last days always refers to the present. The present of the time of the, of the writer as well. Uh, and of course, if you have disputes on that, you can show it to me later and we'll, we'll, we'll explain it. All right, 1 John chapter 2. Jeez, John says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it's the last hour. Not only is it the last days, it's already the last hour. So first off, the eschaton has already arrived. The last days have already begun. And if this is true, it means something very significant for us. Hence the Jesus and the call of the church. It means something very important for us that we have to pay heed to. All right. So point number one is the repeated phrase with the New Testament about the last days. All right, this one's going to be a little bit more difficult. Second point I want to make is there's a distinction in the Bible between the present age and the age to come. Now again, what we do is we go to the Bible and we read because we have an understanding. We think the present age refers to now and the age to come refers to the future. Now let me explain. This is exactly what the Jews of Jesus' day thought. They thought the present day refers to now and the age to come refers to the future. So that is true in terms of what they thought at the time of Jesus. You might notice the disciples asking Jesus in His famous sermon in Matthew 24, Lord, is it this time? You know, when are these things going to happen? And when is the sign of Your coming and of the age to come? Matthew 24, I think that's verse 3. Or verse 2. When is the age to come going to take place? Alright, well let's clarify then as we go to the New Testament, the distinction between the present age and the age to come. Because what we'll find is the New Testament uses the phrase present age and age to come differently than the first century Judaism because there's been a fulfillment in Christ. Let me explain. The present age refers to the world itself. It's temporary. It's fallen. It contains sin and sinful people. And it always refers to things that are destined to perish. This is what the present age means throughout the New Testament then. It refers to our present world. True. Things in it that are destined to perish. Paul says it's the present evil age. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. All my references are from the New American Standard, by the way. uh, In case you're looking here as well. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says the age of this world. So the present age is the world is temporary, it's fallen, contains sinful people. And sin sin itself and things destined to perish, etc. You might be familiar with 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, where it says, in whose case the God of this, well, New American Center says world, but I can tell you the Greek text says age. The God of this age, same phrase. The God of this age has, minded, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So Satan is in fact the God of this age. Now we go to the phrase the age to come and we begin to see something different. First off, the New Testament uses the phrase the age to come In contrast to the present age, the age to come is one of eternal life. It's one of immortality. It's one of redemption as promised through the Old Testament. And it is now realized in Christ by means of his death and resurrection. And it also anticipates the future coming of the kingdom of God. In other words, we live in a state of tension. In the present world as Christians, where the age to come has already arrived, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. However, the present age continues, and they're both existing simultaneously. The age to come has arrived, in other words. We can confirm that the age to come has arrived, let me skip that one, by 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Paul says, referring to, to events of the Old Testament, he says, These events were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. The age to come has arrived, in other words, says Paul. Hebrews 9, verse 26 says, Otherwise, referring to Christ, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And we have many other examples of this. What we find is the phrase, the age to come in the New Testament refers to the present reign of Christ. Make sense? So at the time of Jesus, when he's preaching, and so the disciples ask the question, when is the age to come going to happen? The thought was, we're in the present age and the age to come is, is the future, it's the end. However, when we get outside the Gospels, we realize Jesus' life, death, and resurrection began the age to come. His second coming will end the age to come. I'm sorry, it will end the present age and bring about this marriage between the age to come and the future as well. I don't know how well you can see that, and I don't know, do I have it up? I do. Is that working for you? It is. Yes? No. It's working on my screen, not working on your screen. Okay, here we go. What, what, I got a friend of mine to, to do this for us, so and if you can see it all right, I hope. On the left side, you see the present age, and then you see the cross, Christ himself. And at the, at the cross itself, we now have both at the top, the age to come, and the present age continuing. Now, he put up there heavenly and earthly, and that's okay, but I don't like it too much. Because what we tend to do is we tend to think, okay, the age to come is a heavenly reign of Christ. And it has no effect on the earth at all. No, not true at all. That's pagan dualism, by the way. The Bible does not condone a dualistic mindset. Christians live way too much, by the way, with a dualistic mindset. We think church is spiritual, work is not spiritual. It's all spiritual. It's God reigns over all creation, doesn't he? God does not like us thinking in compartments. That's religious, that's secular. There's no such thing from a biblical worldview. The age to come has already begun then, according, to, as hopefully I'll show you by this chart, at the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. However, and what I had him do now, and, I, and I, see, I've seen no chart that does this. What I asked my friend to do as he put this together for us is this. You see, at the, at the parousia is this Greek word for the coming. Parousia, the coming of Jesus, we call it. Uh, we, you might say the second coming, but the word just means coming. Okay? At the parousia... Heaven and earth are merged. And Paul's going to talk about this, I believe, in his presentation, or at some point we'll get to this as well. You see, heaven and earth become one. The age to come ends, however. I hope that's clarified on this particular chart. I'm sorry, the present, this age. This age ends at the parousia. The age to come now, and the symbol at the end, I I was told, represents eternity. So there's eternity. But what we see at the age to come, at the coming of Christ heaven and earth become wed. And I want us to understand that because we often think, and Paul will pick up on this, I'm sure, in his next presentation. We often think, oh, future for us is heaven. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to the earth. You see, eternity is heaven and earth becoming one. And that's the garden. And Paul will talk about that as well. I'm not going to take your whole speech, Paul. Sorry. Here we go. So the... Yeah, you can go home now. I got you covered. Don't worry about it. A great Christian scholar named Oscar Coleman states it this way He says, We live between D Day and V Day. D Day is when the decisive defeat of the enemy happened. That was the cross and the resurrection. Where, oh, grave is your your sting? Where, oh, death is your victory? 1 Corinthians 15. It's done. D Day is here. It's, it's over with. We've experienced that. All we're looking for now is V Day, the final victory. And the victory, of course, is coming soon. At the second coming of Christ. Let me make one more point here. So I've made two points so far underneath that the kingdom of God that Jesus announced is the fulfillment of all God's promises. The eschaton has already arrived. The third point, of course, is that this is evident, most evident in the resurrection of Jesus. Most evident in the resurrection of Jesus. You see, when the New Testament uses resurrection language, and this is—and I know how most of us think because this is the way I thought, this is the way I was taught all these years. We think of the resurrection of Jesus as Jesus' defeating of death and the promise that therefore someday you too and all of us will, will defeat death. We'll all be resurrected. True, by the way. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. That's what we're looking for. It's the blessed hope. But that's not all. In the New Testament... When Jesus refers to resurrection, to a Jewish world, it meant the restoration of God's people. It didn't mean the bringing back of the dead to some future glorified life. It comes to mean that. But as it would have meant, in the time of the Testament is, it would have meant the restoration of God's people. The exile's over, in other words. God's people have come home. Let me give you two examples that are supporting this. Remember Ezekiel's valley of dry bones? Really weird prophecy. You've got this valley of dry bones, and all of a sudden it's going to come back to life. What's happening? It's resurrecting. What do you mean it's resurrecting? It means Israel, who once was dead, will come back to life again. You see, Ezekiel's a prophet of restoration also. And Israel's living in exile, and Ezekiel's saying, Guys, though you're dead, God can bring dead bones back to life. And I think that's why the Gospel of Matthew references all the tombs breaking open. He, signif- he understands what's happening. The prophecy of Ezekiel is being fulfilled in our midst. Secondly, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we go back and we ask ourselves the questions. Why was Jesus baptized when John the Baptist was baptizing with the baptism of repentance? Because in order for the restoration of God's people to occur, all the prophets say God's people must repent. And Jesus is repenting on behalf of the nation, just like Daniel did in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, he repents on behalf of the people. But in Daniel 9, the angel comes to Daniel and says, Sorry, that was great, but I'm I'm afraid your people have 490 more years of bondage. But when Jesus repents on behalf of the people... God's answer is, the exile is over. Why does Matthew begin his gospel with a genealogy? If you read his genealogy very carefully, and Matthew tells you in verse 17 of chapter 1, this genealogy is in three parts, from Abraham to David. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises to Abraham. From David to the exile, Jesus is the true descendant of David. He's the king of Israel. From the exile to Jesus, the exile is over. And the very next section is, you're going to have a child, and you're going to call him Emmanuel, because God is returning to his people. That's why they name him Emmanuel. And of course, John's gospel begins with an allusion to the the book of Genesis, in the beginning. Because John's gospel sees not just as Israel being restored, but the entire creation is being restored. And if you read John's gospel with that in mind, by the way, some very provocative things begin to appear. And you're going, wow, John has the restoration of all creation in mind in his gospel. And let me stop there. I'll pick it up tomorrow now as we continue on with, hey, what does this mean for the church now? What does this mean for us? How do we live in this last days? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.